what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to make up a talk with you all. And if this is your first time here with this kind of talk, what we do is um, I'd like you to take a moment to reflect on what would be valuable to you or important to you or most interesting to you or vital to you for me to talk about. And then I'll take a number of themes and then I'll make up a talk based on what you're interested in. Maybe you, what's the cutting edge of your practice? What's the most difficult part of practice? The most exciting part of practice that you'd like to hear more about? Or you can also always just throw out what you think might be the hardest thing for me to talk about. <laughs> just for fun. It could be anything about your practice or the Dharma teachings. It helps if it feels vital and alive to you, definitely. Makes it more, usually makes for a better talk. And, and you take half the credit for this talk, so good to consider that. Okay. Um, so, working on emotion in meditation while trying to stay present. Okay, emotions, staying present in meditation. Attachment to Dharma practice, sure. Skillful way of dealing with aversion. for how important the question is the role of jhana in meditative practice what for how important how to recognize and how to use them okay working with um, more difficult aspects of the self arising and finding the balance between um, suppressing or pushing away and indulging or finding the acceptance in between. Difficult aspects of the, of the self and the balance between repression and indulgence.
Tonglin practice. Skillful inquiry and the role of thought. Skillful thought. Aversions. Diversions. So being aversive to diversions. Diversions. And what do you mean by a diversion? Well, you can uh, go home after work in the evening and you can do your practice or you can turn on the TV set or your computer. Uh-huh. Okay. You got it. that last time? Oh, you still have questions. Okay. Non-duality? Pardon? Non-duality. Okay. Is there one more over here? Go ahead. Body, whole body breathing? Body awareness, okay. Saturday, the uh, did I mention the day longs on the mindfulness of the body? So that whole day, whole day will be devoted to body practices. Okay, one more. How to let go of emotional attachment. Uh-huh. Okay. So I took too many, but I won't do them all. Let's see. What. far we get. Um, so let's start by talking about emotions a little bit because they've come up a few times. And the first question was about emotions, staying present in practice when dealing with emotions. Who was that back there? Yeah, okay, great. Um, so technically, technically in the four foundations of mindfulness, emotions are... Um, come under the heading of, of mindfulness of mind. 
And, or, and remember that in, in the language that the Buddha was using, the word citta, which means mind, also means heart. They weren't thought of as separate. And so the whole um, continuum of heart and mind is in, under one of the foundations. Mindfulness of citta, of mind. Or we could just say as well, we could say mindfulness of heart. And um, even in the West, originally, in the Greek, um, the mind was located in the torso. It's only in the last, you know, 2,000 years that the mind has risen up and gotten more disconnected, in the sense, from the body and from the heart itself. And so, um, to be mindful of emotions is really quite natural. It's just a natural part of our practice. Um, it's a natural part of paying attention to who, to, to the um, aspects of what it is to be a human being. Human beings have emotions. It's quite totally natural. The Buddha, especially um, in the section on mindfulness of mind, he's very clear. There's no judgment of preference. There's no like, oh, this is good and this is bad, or this is right or this is wrong. The language he uses, and he's very consistent here, is that the practitioner knows. The practitioner knows if the mind is open or the mind is closed. The practitioner knows, and we can again say, we could say it just as well, the practitioner knows if the heart is open or the heart is closed. The practitioner knows if the, if one, the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. The practitioner knows if there is desire in the heart. The practitioner knows if there is freedom from desire. The practitioner knows if there is agitation or wanting or fear or um, anger. Or the practitioner knows if there is not anger, fear, desire, whatever. The practitioner knows if the heart is happy that if there's joy in the heart and mind. The practitioner knows. This is the main way. It's not that there's a judgment at all. So if you notice that there's some judgment, there's some idea that what you're feeling is wrong, that's not the Buddhist teaching. The Buddhist teaching is to be awake. It's to be mindful of the experience of being a human being. So... Um, Staying present in meditation with emotions means staying present in meditation with the emotion. Staying present isn't to be somewhere else in meditation. One may use the breath as a meditative object, but if the emotions are strong, it's totally skillful to switch, let go of the breath, let the breath shift to the background and stay present with the emotions. We're cultivating the breath to cultivate the heart and mind, to cultivate the presence. We want to cultivate a capacity to be present with our experience. And so we cultivate the breath and then we use that cultivation to be present with the emotions, other body sensations, the mind that thinks, our desires, whatever it is, sounds, smells, tastes, can we cultivate a presence to know what's happening as it's happening? 
And so there's really not any contradiction between staying present and being with emotions ultimately. Is that clear? Yeah, I think the, the problem I have is that it's much easier for me to stay present if I'm focused on breath or body sensation. So, okay, so let's talk about how to stay present with emotions. Yeah. Okay, let's go more to the actual technical. So first we get the, first we're dealing with the view or understanding and the attitude. And the attitude one is of acceptance, that we accept our emotions. If you notice that there's aversion to emotions, then you have to start being mindful of the aversion. Because that's not the Buddha's teachings in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So then how do we stay uh, present with emotions? It really helps to have the, first of all, the ground of the view and the understanding and the openness. Mindfulness um, includes a quality of being open to our experience, so it means being open to emotions. So there's a kind of inquiry here, but this is a kinesthetic inquiry. This is a felt sense inquiry that we're starting with. Not so much thinking. Now, we're not using the thinking capacity here so much, except to know, oh, I know, this is anger. You know, I'm pissed. Okay, now the second piece that we want to know is, what does that feel like? Let me feel it. Let me sit here and feel it. Intense, strong, strong what? Heat, fire, energy, maybe some contraction. Maybe the breath gets really fast when I feel the anger. Also, I start to be aware, oh, there's generally some narrative associated with the anger. He did this, she did that, I should have, I will, I'm going to, they're going to get it, you know, something. There's some narrative. It's important to notice the narrative without simply being entranced by the narrative. The, the, um, The most valuable part of working with emotions is the actual feeling of them. The felt sense, the somatic and kinesthetic and energetic reality that can be quite alive in a moment. And as we build the ground of our practice, as we build our balance and our capacity to sit really with anything, then we can let the emotion burn, flame, fire, come, and we also have, start to have the capacity to let it go. Emotions can have the uh, can self-liberate with mindfulness. We don't have to fix them. We don't have to get rid of them. Our practice is to stay mindful and present with the emotion and see its nature. And its nature is the nature of all things. It's contingent. It's ephemeral. It's changing. It's transient and ultimately impermanent. Now, most of us are not trained at actually feeling, staying present with our emotions. And so it's important to see your, yourself as being a little bit in training, in working with emotions themselves. Maybe you don't know how to do it. Okay, well, let's see. What happens if I sit here when I'm sad? or when I'm angry, or when I'm happy. And part of the 
way we tend to deal with emotions. If we like the emotion, we want it to stay. If we don't like the emotion, we want it to go away. Those two instructions, like stay or go away, that's not in the teachings of mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply the practitioner knows. It's not the practitioner doesn't like or likes. If the practitioner likes the emotion or doesn't like, that's also something to be mindful of, not to act on. So the practitioner knows if she likes the emotion or the practitioner knows if she doesn't like the emotion. Now the question comes up about um, emotional attachment. And sometimes, often people come to Buddhism because there's a lot of suffering around emotions. We suffer with our emotions, with our feelings. We tend to uh, take them as who we are. Like, this is me. If I'm angry, I'm a bad person because I'm an angry person. Or if I'm sad, well, then I'm a sad person. There's something wrong with me. We tend to identify with them. One of the benefits of learning how to sit with emotion and see its nature is then we see that although we may be connected to it or even, I'll use the psychological term, cathected to it for a while, it's not ultimate, it's for a while. How many emotions have you had? Where are they all now? You know, maybe you're having a little emotion like boredom right now or something. But, but you know, whatever the worst or most biggest or strongest emotion, they all have the nature to change. So in some sense, the task is not to let go of emotions, but to see their nature. To see the truth of what an emotion is. It's contingent on a number of conditions that come together like, you know, my partner left me and I feel rotten, right? There's certain conditions happen. Those conditions aren't ultimate. They aren't permanent conditions. They're conditions that are here for a while, they sustain for a while, and then they pass. The question is, if we're staking our well-being on conditions having to be a certain way, there's no freedom there. It's, it's just not... There's no freedom in the conditions. The Buddha pointed to the possibility of a freedom that's not based on the conditions, partly because we learn how to open to conditions, live right in the middle of conditions, without being identified with the conditions. And it's not a schizoid or a dissociation, but it's finding a presence that is not the small sense of self. That there's something else here. There's something else that's part of our innate nature that is free. And part of our task as practitioners and as meditators is to discover that freedom for ourselves. doesn't matter whether the Buddha said it or Eugene said it or anybody said it. Ultimately, we each need to find that freedom for ourselves. And that's part of the adventure of practice to really see and one can do it just by sitting with uh, anger or sadness or happiness 
and sit, sit with it and sit with it until you see what is it? What is this? And so there's in, implicit in the mindfulness is um, a tremendous curiosity. What is this experience that I'm taking to be real or me or permanent or that I'm judging myself based upon? What is this? Let me see. Let me feel it. Let me really sit with it. And emotional attachment, you know, some of it's natural, will happen quite naturally. Um, as we meditate, the as our view begins to get a little bigger, then the attachments, they even have a, a place and we're not so attached. You know, we, there's generally with love there'll be some attachment. They're not the same thing. I want to be clear about that. They're not the same thing. Love and attachment are not the same thing. But often they tend to conflate in some way. And then part of our practice is to not say, okay, I'm not going to fall in love because I'm going to get attached. No, go ahead, get attached. Go ahead, And then you can study attachment. This is how we really learn about attachment is by staying present with it. Not by being aversive to it. Because that's just aversion. And so, there was a question about attachment to dharma in there, right? Get attached. Who asked that question? Where that? Yeah, get attached. But study the attachment. Pay attention to it. What is it you're getting attached to? What do you think you're getting attached to? And how does that happen? And what, what, is, the, what, what is attachment itself? That's a, it's actually a fascinating question. Let's not. One of the beauties, and really the one, of, maybe one of the most beautiful things of vipassana practice, is that we don't take anything for granted. Like even though we felt anger a hundred times, when anger comes, we actually take it as if we don't even know what it is, or we know what it is, but that knowing is a little bit held in abeyance, so we can really see what the living reality is now, now. Because now is the only real truth there is. Everything's a, a memory otherwise. It's a reference. So even attachment, you know, there's no, there might not be this generalized attachment to the Dharma. You know, you might be attached one day and not attached another. And then what is that? What is attachment, whether it's to emotions or to, to Dharma? And now, here's another piece about especially attachment to the, the Dharma. The Buddha, one way that the Buddhist teaching is thought about, and actually the training, the Eightfold Path, and, and all the, those limbs go to support finer and finer levels of attachment. So, the first attachment that one starts to let go of is attachment to worldly pleasures. And the attachment to the Dharma is a movement that we start to be attached to something more sublime than worldly pleasure. Like meditation practice, especially when we learn a certain level of practice, when we start to come into contact with peace and ease and relaxation and a sense of pleasure and joy and delight in the meditative practice, it's cool. It's like, wow, I don't need to go 
buy something to feel good. I can actually just sit here and feel good by paying attention. Or I can, even if I feel bad, I actually start to have the skill, oh, I can sit with this. I don't need to go to a movie to distract myself. It doesn't mean movies are bad or shopping's bad. I don't mean that. But all of a sudden we start to see there's something we actually like better. And then we get a little attached to it. And that's considered a skillful attachment. And then as practice gets more and more refined, the attachments get more refined. So we don't get attached. You know, sitting just becomes normal. And then certain states of consciousness now, we know how to get there. Oh, that's really... We can really get attached to certain states of meditative consciousness. And they're cool. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The jhanas have a tremendous amount of pleasure, rapture, delight, happiness, equanimity in them. And, and that attachment is considered an even more refined kind of attachment. And the movement here is being attached actually more and more to the Dharma in a more and more refined way until, in some sense, we can't go back to those old attachments. They just look gross. Like, you know, getting a car, you know, it's nice, but you just know it's not what's going to make you happy. Or just, you know, kind of doing practice half-heartedly, oh, that's not exactly going to make me happy. Or even, you know, if you're in fourth jhana, then first jhana looks kind of gross. You don't care about that anymore. It's like, oh, fourth jhana, that's really nice. And then at some point, even the jhanas become a little dissatisfactory. Even refined states of consciousness, one sees the dukkha in them. Dukkha means suffering or dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. And now the heart and mind turns fully towards freedom, turns fully, sees that the happiness we all seek is not based on conditions, not even meditative conditions. And so there's a kind, and then the letting go happens naturally. It's not an aversive letting go. It's just, oh, what do we really want? We really want to be happy. And then where does our happiness come from? This was, this was partly, this is the inspiration of the Buddha who wouldn't settle for anything but total happiness, complete happiness as a human being. He wouldn't settle for less. He was very passionate that way. And he had a lot of meditative attainments, but he wouldn't settle for anything less than total freedom, total happiness. Pardon? Was he freedom? Not at that point. And may, maybe he was, but as soon as you're free, it doesn't matter. Because then it's gone. It's, and the, the metaphor that's often used is the raft. That you need a raft to cross the river. Once you get across the river, you don't carry the raft in your head, right? You leave it. It's done. So, emotions... Attachment to Dharma with some other let's see um, aversion because we're what's being woven in here. Who talked about aversion? Who asked about aversion? The great aversion with skillful ways of dealing with aversion. Be aversive. <laughs> so that's the first skillful thing is to be aversive. In other words, don't judge the aversion. 
There's nothing wrong with aversion. It's actually not a problem. The practitioner knows when there's aversion. The practitioner knows when there's not aversion. The practitioner knows when there's greed. The practitioner knows when there's not greed. That's the way to practice with aversion. And part of, um, you know, different people have different temperaments. Some people are more greedy, some people are more deluded, some people are more aversive. You may be an aversive type in Buddhist cosmology. The, the cosmology, I've talked about it here, but it's a, it's a, a personality typology in Buddhism. Three main characters. There's the aversive character, there's the greedy character, and there's the confused type. They're actually all deluded. They're all deluded. Um, the aversive character goes to the party, walks in, says, oh, look at this place. The lighting is, look at how tacky that lighting is. Wow, all they have is tea, and they don't even have regular cups. You've got to drink out of paper. And Wow, couldn't they get some more nice sabutans for people or something? You know, that's aversive type, sees what's wrong. The greedy type comes in and says, oh, wow, this is great. Look, they have paintings on the wall. I love those paintings. And Oh, there's a piano. This is, what a great space. It's wood floor. It's really nice. And Oh, God, I love those old lights. Those are really cool, very 50s. That's the, and, then the, and then the confused type comes in and says, uh, am I in the right place? Is this, are we doing Tonglin or are we doing Vipassana here? I, I can't remember. And What time do we start? So there's different ways that one might identify one's personality. And um, in the Buddhist texts, in the commentaries, they actually talk about different ways to relate to the different types so that the, so that the identification releases. So the aversive type, when the aversive type goes to the monastery, they get the nicest kuti, the nicest hut. Because they're, they're kind of cranky, the aversive types, <laughs> right? And, and so they, they're treated as nicely as by given the nicest robes and the nicest bowl and, all the nicest stuff as a part of the way to get that part of their mind to begin to relax. The greed type, it's not quite the same, I have to tell you. You get the other side, the greedy types. But, um, and then, so I'm just giving you the typology, and then there's the thing, we all have aversion. We all have aversive. Sometimes we're aversive to ourselves or to other people or to situations or work or to what's happening in our meditation. Anybody ever know that? Like all of a sudden you don't like what's happening in your meditation? That's aversion. And it's really important to know aversion. So the second foundation, the mindfulness of the mind of chitta is the third foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of vedna, of what's called feeling which is not emotion in Buddhism, that's in the third foundation. In the second foundation, it's feeling tone. It's the feeling tone of any moment. That any moment has a flavor to it, that, and it can change from one moment to the next of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And when it's pleasant, we tend to have a grasping towards it. We want to keep it. When it's unpleasant, we're aversive 
towards it. We want to get rid of it. When it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we tend to fall asleep to it. We, it's harder to pay attention to. We get a little confused. And so you, I hope you can hear that within this, you can hear the three types. Pleasant means that there's greed generally. Unpleasant means there's aversion. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant means generally there's some confusion. And so the, this is a whole way to practice mindfulness. It's actually noticing if a moment of experience, like I can ring the bell, and for some people that bell is pleasant in this moment. For some people it's unpleasant, it's too tinny, they'd like a nicer bell, a bigger bell, lower pitched. But some people it's like, oh, did he, why did he ring the bell now? You know, they don't quite... <laughs> <you know. laughs> and, um, but let's just say mostly with pleasant, unpleasant. And so I could ring the bell and it could be pleasant or unpleasant depending on the conditions, the state of heart and mind and where you're at. And even for the same person, the next time I ring the bell, it could be different. But the, the key here is that if we can be aware of the Vedana, the feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, then we can start to really be aware of our reaction to the feeling tone. Oh, I like it, I don't like it, or I, I don't even know what's happening. I'm not paying attention. And when we're mindful of that, then we're not in the thrall of the wanting or not wanting or the confusion. Now, mindfulness is set to the fore, as the Buddha would say. Mindfulness is leading. Again, we're not changing the conditions. We're not getting rid of the aversion. We're not denying it. We're not judging it. We're being mindful of it, which partly means we're not bound by it in the usual way. And one more piece about, and this is true for both emotions and aversion. Feeling the felt sense of the emotion or of the aversion is very helpful. Like, what does aversion actually feel like? What's happening in your body when you feel aversive? Generally, there'll be some tension. It could be very gross or very fine, but there'll be some holding, some tension, some tightness. It won't just be relaxed, open, flowing. It won't be released. Okay. And then to, and you don't have to, you can breathe with that, allow it. See what happens as you stay present with it without trying to keep it there, the tension. So that ties in a little bit to this, how to work with difficult aspects of the self, the balance between repression and indulgence. So would you be willing to say the difficult aspect of the self or is that too much? <laughs> the animal self, the instinctual self. One of my favorite parts. Pardon? So, you know, have you noticed that we're animals? Anybody notice that? <laughs> well, if you haven't, I'm, I just want you to know that. <laughs> we're animals. We, we have many of the qualities of animals, right? We're sentient beings. We have a certain kind of aliveness, like birds, like ducks, like 
lions, like cows, like hawks, like ants. I mean, really, we have a certain sentience, a certain aliveness, body. We live for a certain amount of time. And we have certain instincts that all animals have. The instinct for self-preservation. The instinct for um, tribe or social connection. The instinct for procreation and sexuality. Instincts around um, um, survival also are, are both are around aggression. We have certain instinctual energies. Now, we seem to be of somewhat unique in the animal kingdom is that we're in, we also seem to have this incredibly highly developed brain that can be self-reflective and a very highly developed communicative skill um, and capacity for numerous things, numerous capacities that human beings have that seem to be very sophisticated. And we have the possibility, the potentiality of awakening. And it, it's said that all beings have that potentiality, but that this is the optimal realm. As human beings, this is the optimal realm for awakening. That there's enough suffering, but not too much suffering in the human realm. For most animals, they're so concerned with safety and security they don't have time. They don't have the presence, the wherewithal, or the self-reflective capacities to begin to look at the nature of their own being. So, so it's a natural part of our practice to work with the instincts that are here. And probably the two main instincts, or the three main instincts around survival, sexuality, and aggression. And the same principles apply. The same principles apply. Like not judging the instincts. There's nothing wrong with our instincts. Actually, I've been reading this. There's this very interesting book called The Body and Religion. And a lot of it's about when did the split half start to happen between spirit and body. And I just, I didn't know this, but it, it really comes from the Greeks. I always thought it came from like Christianity or Judaism or the, the religions. It actually comes from the Greeks, which I didn't know from Greek philosophy, from the Platonic ideals being idealized and the body starting to be denigrated. And it just really surprised me. I didn't think of, I never understood Greek culture that way. And, but anyhow, so partly, partly we're dealing with that split still. We still, that now that split, that doesn't mean that the religions haven't incorporated that split, but it didn't start with the religions. But we're dealing with that split. It's actually in the, in the, in the 12 week class that I'm doing on the body. That's the talk I'm going to give um, on Tuesday, Tuesday night. But, um, but for our purposes, just in terms of mindfulness, um, first of all, we don't want to judge the instincts. And then we want to see, and, par and partly not judging them means that we'll see our, the judgments that are there. That we all have in, in, um, 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 introjected 
the societal and religious and cultural judgments about the instincts, about our aggression, about our sexuality, about survival, that there's usually some judgment there and we want to see it because so, we don't want to be bound by it. And then there's also all kinds of societal interjects now, especially around sexuality, like or, or you know changes every 10 or 15 years or something. But you know, like in the 60s, you were supposed to be totally sexually open, and to be uptight, to not be sexually open was to be uptight. Or there's other kinds of injunctions that come depending on culture and time and place also important to see what those are so we can begin to see directly for ourselves our own experience our own direct experience around survival and aggression you know and, and like even in buddhism in practice there's a lot of idea like the aggressive anger is bad you know anger is bad you should never be angry or you, hating is bad or or, or feeling or being aggressive is a bad thing. Peace is the most important thing. In some sense, there's a teeny bit of truth to that. Peace indicates a tremendous amount of freedom. But, but there's a lot of judgment that's getting overlaid on things that are quite natural. And we can't really study something if we're judging it. We can't really pay attention to it fully. And so if we back off the judgments, then we can start to see what's here. Well, let's see, what, what is aggression? And all of us have it. Now, it may be repressed or denied or unconscious, but we all have it. Or it may come out too easily. We may act on our aggression. And that's not skillful. So neither the repression or the indulgence is considered skillful. What's skillful is really the razor's edge of practice, which is to feel it, feel one's aggression, allow it without acting on it. Or to be, feel one's sexuality. If one wants to really learn about sexuality, feel it, let it rip. Don't do anything about it. See what that's like. Because the, in the repression, we won't learn much. And we'll learn something about acting on it, actually. But oftentimes, we're so enthralled with sexuality that we forget to be mindful. And there is a whole, there is a whole way the Buddha talks about for, for householders that one is to be mindful, to bring the principles of Dharma into our life and therefore into our sexuality. And so then the principles are part of practicing um, not... Um, not repressing and not indulging around sexuality means bringing the principles of Dharma with our sexuality. And the first principle, maybe the most important around sexuality, is non-harming. And non-harming means, first of all, non-harming of oneself and non-harming with others. And then, of course, other principles come into play around sexuality, which is the, the teaching about speech and right speech and being honest and truthful because that will help because um, a lot of the suffering around sexuality is a, often the, there can be a lot of dishonesty especially if there's people are married or in relationships and they're acting outside of that without it being honest and um, 
And then there's some also part of mindfulness and especially the teaching for householders is actually enjoying our sexuality. Enjoying it in, in ways where it's not harming anybody, self or other. It's totally fine. And then the principles that come into play there are very actually meditative principles. What does it mean to be really present with our sexuality when we're enacting it? Whereas, can, can we be aware of the concentration, the mindfulness, the sensitivity to self and other that's called for in sexuality? Does that address? And then to appreciate the instincts, are, they have their place. Even they have a, a, both in and of themselves, there's something... You know, the instinct towards survival is an important instinct for animals. Now, at some point, we may not be bound by it, but we can appreciate it. Or the aggressive instinct, as we learn to sit with it, stay with it, allow it, let it rip without acting on it or repressing it, there's a transformative possibility that it can turn into strength and clarity. And the Tibetan teachings often posit what are called the wrathful aspects, the wrathful deities. And, the, and it points to the transformative possibility of these energies and, and emotions themselves. And, and actually in the Tibetan tradition, some of the imagery for awakening is, is the... Um, um, one of the de- a deity and the, de- the consort of the deity in sexual em- embrace. It actually represents a certain kind of wholeness, ultimately. Pardon? Staying in the uncomfortable place? Which uncomfortable place? When you're in the midst of what you were just saying about about aggression feeling it not not acting on it staying in in it so the same principles apply feel your body feel the energy and of course it can be really helpful to breathe with it the body becomes this incredible vehicle and instrument for us to metabolize our experience It, 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 it becomes the way that we ground all experience including what's difficult. Okay, let's see if we can get a couple more in. Um, I want to say at least a couple words about jhana. It's a whole talk. Um, Actually, why don't I give a concentration talk next week and I'll go into some detail. Will you be here? Because you asked a lot of different questions and we have very little time. So I, I'd rather give... I'll give, a, uh, I'll give a talk about concentration next week, looking at concentration, how we develop concentration, how it's used for mindfulness, how mindfulness is used to develop concentration, and then the role of access concentration and jhanas. I'll, I'll do a, an overview of concentration next week, including jhana. And it'll, it'll answer most of your questions. 
And then the um, I did want to see something about diversions. Who asked about diversion? Yeah, there are no diversions. It's a very interesting practice to go home and meditate with your TV on. And uh, it's, it's a practice. Or with your computer. And really the question is the same about how to be mindful with emotions. How do we stay present even when we're watching the TV? What does that mean? So here's a tip. Here's Eugene's, you know, one of Eugene's tips. And this tip, and I found this very helpful. If you want to learn how to be, meditate in front of the TV, go home from the group, sit in front of your TV, eyes open, and meditate. Don't turn the TV on. No, I'm, this is a serious tip. <laughs> or go to your computer, sit down at the computer, and don't turn it on. Turning it on adds a certain level of complexity that's it's more difficult. <laughs> so we want to start, we want to build our presence first and then bring the TV or the computer into our presence rather than trying to find our way, you know, at once we're already enthralled with the TV. So it, it, and even this is another way you can do this in driving meditation. Get in your car, sit down, don't turn it on. Just sit there for a while. Meditate in the... Take your seat. And what happens is you, that we start to build a kinesthetic sense of presence, mindfulness, concentration right there. That's not... And then later we want to add the complexity of driving or working on the computer or watching the basketball game. That's second step. That's a little harder practice. And this is, this is just a principle you can apply anywhere. You know, you want to learn how to meditate with your partner when you're having an argument? First meditate not having an argument. You know, first, or how to talk and meditate? First meditate just sitting with somebody, looking at them. Start with lower levels of, of, um, of um, complexity and gradually move to more more uh, a higher level of complexity. But there are no diversions, really. That's, that's a myth. And then just the last thing I'll say is about non-duality. Same answer as last time. <laughs> Let's see. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.